Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group. Unlocking innovation at the Patent and Trademark Office. The DevSecOps solution to agile development. And securing your agency's perimeter across the country. It's Thursday, February 9th, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Top decision makers from government and industry will be at IT Mod Talks next month discussing the ongoing efforts to modernize federal IT. It's all happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City on March 15th. You can learn more and register now at fedscoop.com slash attend. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has one of the first civilian software factories. USPTO uses the software factory to support a remote workforce of nearly 500,000 employees and has shortened the development of programs from years to weeks. Jamie Holcomb is Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and Bob Stevens is Vice President of Public Sector at GitLab. Jamie and Bob, thanks so much for joining me today. Jamie, I'll start with you. Let's set the scene a little bit. What challenges did USPTO face, and how has the adoption of DevSecOps and a software factory model helped you to overcome those challenges? One of the first things that happened was you had to ascertain where you were, figure out what the inventory is and what challenges you faced. And pretty much we had 30 year old client server applications running with a lot of technical debt. And what does that mean? They haven't been upgraded and they haven't really been shown the new way of doing business across the internet. And so a lot of it was the old adage of castle and moat cybersecurity, as well as a VPN access to a centralized location. So in a way, we were the most efficient US government organization with one data center and one backup. Really great, not good for resiliency though. So what happened was, and what led to one, what led to my, hiring was the fact that they took a big outage on one of their patent applications and they were down for 11 days. Can you imagine almost 9,000 examiners not being able to work for two weeks? I mean, you're talking tens of millions of dollars. We really needed to bring in the new internet architectures and slowly transition away from the old client server of 30 years ago. And so in order to do that, you know, we had to create the organization that could actually modernize in a fast and quick way, better, cheaper, and faster. And so one of the first things I did, the unique approach was eliminating the project management office. In US government, that's anathema. Oh my God, you have to have a program office to run all your projects. No, because what we did was we created the product inventory. So instead of having projects, we had product teams. And in those teams, we used the agile DevSecOps method. So developers couldn't throw it over the fence to the maintainers and say, you deal with it. It was now all those things were put together and they had to function as a team on the mission. And that mission being awarding patents and or registering trademarks. And people got around that. Instead of trying to be the best network engineer, now you had to actually get the patent center and examination done, or you had to get your product of patent search done. 
So it was a, an entire way to look at the business in a new light and how IT tools can actually supplant and support that. So the software factory came in because it was needed. We had to do DevSecOps and we had to do it quickly. And one of the things that any type of change agent knows, you have to have those quick wins and you have to have something of significance. So I'll never forget, we, uh, we had something called the T-Rex and we actually supplanted one of the major applications and patents in a time period that had never been done before. And I knew based on my inventory of people and process and tools that we could really do this. They just needed the right focus and inspiration. And they told me it couldn't be done in six months. We did it in four. And so it was really the overcoming of the naysayers and proving that it could work that really helped the momentum continue on to this day. Four years later, we're almost there. 60, 65% of us, we're, we're almost there on the modernization trail. So we're on a good path, but there's still a lot of work to do. Well, it sounds like quite a success story. And Bob, I want to ask you, are there other examples across government where uh, agencies or organizations have leveraged uh, a Dex, DevSecOps approach to support an agile program development similar to what Jamie and USPTO have done? Yeah, so yes, there's, there's actually many of them. Um, but the one I'll, I'll talk about the most is uh, probably the Air Force. Uh, sorry, Jamie, I know you're Army, but uh, I was Air Force, so I got I got to give a, a plug in for the Air Force. So um, you probably heard of Platform One uh, and uh, other other software factories like Kessel Run. Uh, they were kind of the first uh, in the Air Force uh, to really adopt uh, the software factory approach. Um, and you know some of the the the, the benefits of it uh, were you know, speed to mission. Um, Jamie addressed that a little bit uh, in some of the, the applications that uh, he talked about. Um, but, you know, the Air Force has got a lot of numbers out there. They, they're able to take, you know, changes in, in, in code um, from months to, uh, to days, if not hours, uh, in a lot of cases. Um, and so uh, it's, you know, as you can imagine, it's very important for our, you know, our DOD organizations to be able to, to move that quickly um, given the threats that they face every day um, and, you know, some of the advances that the adversaries are, are making. So um, those two platforms have been uh, incredibly successful. Um, there's uh, there's quite a few others. The other thing I like that the Air Force has done is that, the, you know, they have several software factories uh, and they're focused on different things. Um, so as, a, as an example, Besman is focused on the administrative um, applications that uh, airmen need to be successful as airmen. Um, and I think if the, if the Air Force had tried to build one software factory for all applications, things like Besman produces would never happen um, because they would get such a low priority, you know, like as an example, the F-35 would always get priority uh, over most other things. Um, and so I think that, you know, the approach that they've taken in building specific factories for specific purposes or missions, I think has also been very, very helpful for, uh, for the Air Force. And Jamie, I'm curious, you know, USPTO is one of those agencies in federal government that really, really goes all in on remote work. And I'm curious how the software factory approach has continued to support that, uh, you know, uh, use of remote work across the agency. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't believe that you could really do team-oriented programming from remote areas. And we proved it to be true even before the pandemic. 
what we were doing was we were accepting the fact that we had different teams from different software vendors. And then we integrated those teams at a higher level. As an example, our trademark product line has four different software vendors. So we have about six different product teams. And what they do then is they do the mission and then we see how well their velocity in the agility of DevSecOps is the KPIs and how they're being measured. And yes, they're in a competition, but it's a competition that's friendly and integrated. And so when we have other task orders that come up, we're not buying uh, so much the thing that's being done as the capacity that we need to get it done. And I think that's a change in the way that government needs to look at things. You don't know what the requirements are what up front. Oh, but if you don't know, you shouldn't contract. No, you know you're going to have the mission. You know you need to complete it. So by the time you get the requirements and by the time everything's done, the requirements have changed. We have to have a better, faster, and cheaper procurement system. So what we've tried to do is accelerate with a sense of urgency how we're buying capacity and not just somebody to do the requirements. And Bob, I'm interested by what Jamie said about KPIs and measuring things. And I'm curious on your end, what are some of the benchmarks that organizations should have in place to know that they are on track on their DevSecOps journey and who at an agency should be in charge of measuring that? Um, so uh, some of the things that uh, I think, you know, well, security is one uh, for sure. Um, and probably the most important one. Um, authority to operate is another. And I'm sure Jamie can attest to this. You know, by by deploying a software factory and 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 using a platform for DevSecOps, um, you can get to ATO a lot faster, which is what he was um, talking about a little bit um, earlier. Uh, and that's one of the the most challenging, I think, uh, um, situations for government agencies. Uh, you know, they can get the code done, but getting the authority. Um, to operate that code uh, has taken months and months and months. So um, by using the software factory and deploying the platform, I think that uh, you know organizations like USPTO have been able to speed up that process, um, which in the end just helps everyone, helps them, helps their customers um, get to where they need to be. Um, you know, I mentioned security. So ensuring that security is built into the process rather than having it uh, as an afterthought. So, you know, in the past, developers would do their work uh, and then they would hurt, hand it over to the security group and said, go evaluate our application for us. Um, the times have changed. That needs to be incorporated into the DevSecOps process so that by the time the developer is done, that the organization could be relatively assured that that um, application is secure as it, as it possibly could be. Um, rather than you know getting a you know a twenty page report at the end and now having to go fix all of the things or find all of the things that were discovered as a result of that, so I think those are probably two key aspects of uh, of um, you know you, you mentioned KPIs that need to need to happen during the process. And Jamie, uh, you alluded or mentioned the fact that you know the the system was down for eleven days and it really impacted end users. And I, my question is, you know, about those end users and how you're able to keep them in mind along this transformation and how you kept them as this, you know, central focus point point. And if it at all changed how you approached your software factory effort. 
As I mentioned before, and you just stated it, it's all about focus on the experience, right? So what are we doing? It's mission first, but people always. What's the mission? Awarding patents and registering trademarks. Everything needs to be about that. Anything that strays from that takes away from that focus. So the first thing to do is to get people knowing that the applicant and the examiner is where it's at. That is the customer experience for both the examiner and the applicant. Realize the internal user is the examiner, the external user being the applicant. So how do we make this process most efficient, better, faster, and cheaper using the KPIs from a customer perspective, both internal and external? Put yourself in the customer's shoes, the applicant and or the examiner. What do you want to be better, faster, and cheaper? And I think having developers, security-minded, and then operations people all um, coalescing, all focused on that primary mission really gets through all of the, I'll call it bullshit, that goes on. Oh, we have to comply with this. Oh, you have to do this. Oh, you No, you don't have to do anything except your mission. And one of the great things about the PTO that's a little different than most of the government is we don't collect any taxes. We don't use any taxes. We collect fees and we use fees to the betterment. We have a fiduciary to ensure that those fees give the biggest bang for the least amount of buck. And so with that, we are given the authority to use that money as best we can. Do we uh, uh, comply with most of the requirements of the federal government? Yes. I mean, we're a, a monopoly of the federal government awarding patents and registering trademarks. But at the same time, we can cut through all of the compliance bureaucracy and get to incremental process. You know, a lot of times we were talking about the ATO and the fact is, well, it's either on or off. You're either authorized or not. We have to change that mindset of the castle and moat of black and white. And we have to do just like agility says, incrementally improve continuous refinement rather than this one big, oh, we got to do it all. No, because if you're trying to be perfect, you're never going to get there. The enemy of the great is the perfect, right? So try to get incremental improvements and your backlog is so huge. It's all about the priorities that you put into that backlog, what you're addressing right now in the short term, how it's going to help you in the long term and see the incremental process. The other thing that I really despise about the government process is the fact that everything is done in one year, three year and five year increments. No, no, no. The commercial world has it right. Do it in 90-day increments and fail fast. If you don't get the results you wanted in 90 days, adapt, make changes. Don't keep the same plan. Oh, we're too big to fail. No, if you fail big, that's the problem. Fail small, fail fast, and fail forward. So, Bob, as we close out, uh, Jamie gave us a lot of great advice and best practices, but I'm curious how, from your perspective at GitLab, you think other agencies can leverage USPTO's story to achieve their modernization goals. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, so, J Jamie mentioned this earlier uh, when he, um, he, he talked about the uh, being a change agent, uh, and that change was a cultural change, uh, which is the most difficult thing to undertake in any organization. It doesn't matter if it's a public or private sector. 
Uh, and Jamie undertook that uh, and really changed the culture there, which has allowed them to be able to get to the position that they're in in order to serve their customers uh, in the best possible way. Um, so I really appreciate you know, that type of leadership, that willingness to take on the most difficult task uh, and then see it through, uh, which is what Jamie, uh, Jamie has done. You know, I'd love for him to be the CIO at uh, many other organizations so that uh, they could do the same things. <laughs> well, Jamie Holcomb, Bob Stevens, great conversation. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Bob. Great talking with you as usual. Thanks, Jay. You can learn more about DevSecOps across government at fedscoop.com. Top cybersecurity leaders from government and industry are coming to the Zero Trust Summit later this month. You'll hear how agencies are adopting Zero Trust and modernizing their security postures. It's all happening at the International Spy Museum on February 23rd from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. You can learn more and register now at fedscoop.com slash attend. The Department of Health and Human Services has a nationwide network of regional and field offices across the country. The agency says more than 70% of its employees work outside the Washington, D.C. area. In an interview with my Scoop News Group colleague Wyatt Cash, HHS OIG's Chief Information Officer Gerald Karen discusses how his organization has shifted its cloud structure and secured the expanded attack surface. So we, we are a multi-cloud environment um, in that sense. But as far as it goes for the perimeter, it's no longer that castle and moat. Um, we're changing our attack service, basically, um, from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, now it's out in the cloud. It's not within the, our data center walls and things like that. So definitely, I think that's the good thing about when we start talking about zero trust is what are we really trying to protect um, and putting our protections around those applications or those data repositories. And, and focusing it from that way, that, then those end up basically becoming the perimeter based on you know the identity, right data, the right people at the right time. So definitely it changes the concept and the mindset. Um, not to say that there isn't a place for you know the, the firewalls that we have know and love uh, from today and, and the past, those still have a place, but I think it's more looking at it from an architectural view and how we, Put the protections in the right place depending on what we're protecting so that the cloud aspect in the multi-cloud environments definitely that change in attack surface the change in the culture and how we do cybersecurity with the introduction of well zero trust has been around for many years but now you know people are embracing it starting to get it um so definitely that that's the way to go and, and focus you know on those micro segmentation aspects not um just the big castle moat or i like to refer to it as the tootsie roll pop uh hard harder show with the soft gooey center well one thing that's also different today is just the increasing volumes of data traffic and the need to encrypt and decrypt all that traffic so how is that reshaping your view of what modern firewalls need to accomplish yeah so you know, we're creating more data than ever. Um, we're, we're becoming data-driven organization, um, relying on data to make the right decisions because of the, the availability of that data and the usefulness of that data um, really driving the mission. So now with the introduction of cloud, data is flowing in different places as well. So understanding what your data flows are is something that 
is one of the foundational projects we're taking undertaking for our zero trust. So understanding like taking an application, understanding what that data flow is. So I know where it's going, where it's and what I what is it I'm protecting? Because it's not always sitting in place. It's usually in motion. So we want to understand and does that look right? Because once we grandfather and we can baseline what looks right, then when something that happens that's abnormal or it's flowing in someplace else, it's like, is that right? We need to take an action. What's the policy we need to build around that? Um, so those that's one of the foundational things that we're doing is understanding our and mapping our data flows. That's not doing network mapping. Uh, that's actually mapping the data flows of a system, of our data center, what's talking to what at any given time. So we can get an understanding and baseline of what we are trying to protect and what normal looks like so we can take action when abnormal happens. So that's something that's very important, I think, and is a very big foundational piece of what we're doing. Absolutely. Well, next, where are you seeing your infrastructure and security modernization efforts uh, paying off with uh, a stronger or more dynamic perimeter? I look at it as an opportunity. It's, it's enabling. Um, our undertaking of our zero trust architecture is also going to bring benefits for our end users. Uh, like I said, um, you know, today we rely on VPNing in coming into an on-premises data center that we own with our firewalls, so we get all that telemetry. With the introduction of TIC 3.0 and but still meeting those security requirements because we still have to have that telemetry to be able to protect the data and our users. We now have that flexibility to go more direct, not have to rely on that on-premises firewall or data center just to boomerang back out because we just talked about in our first question about going to the cloud. Now, how inefficient is it for me to be sitting at home or sitting in the office VPNing to an on-premise data center just to do what? Boomerang back out to the cloud or the internet. So there's definitely, we're looking at that. There's some technologies we're looking at that give us that same techno, that same uh, security telemetry that we can leverage as part of our, our risk monitoring and our, and our dynamic risk scoring um, so that we can take appropriate actions, still have that visibility that we need but the users get the end benefit of going more direct. So hopefully performance improvements as well as um, better, better access to, to those cloud applications as a result um, when we do our identity management, how they authenticate, um, being more mobile um, as a result, not having to rely on that VPN and, and one of those two data centers to boomerang back out to. Um, it should be more seamless to them. So we, we look at it as a, not just a cybersecurity effort that we're undertaking, but a modernization effort that's bringing um, those benefits. So again, getting the right data to the right people at the right time um, is, is very important um, because that's the mission that we're supporting. So um, there's we look at it as a modernization effort, not just a solely a cybersecurity effort. So how do people want to work is something that we're inventorying. You mentioned zero trust earlier. I'm curious to know also, how how are the government's zero trust objectives, particularly around network environments, reshaping uh, your approach and your agency's approach to um, its top security priorities for the coming year? Yeah, um, and I, um, you know, I was very ecstatic to see the uh, federal government as a whole, you know, embrace the zero trust concept. Um, as far as the network itself, um, I've always looked, even before executive orders and everything, 
network is just a transport, so to speak. And, and I'm I'm kind of oversimplifying it. I know, um, you know, encryption is still important, all those things. But, you know, it's moving the protections closer to those data sources, uh, hardening those applications in such a way so that we're moving the perimeters and kind of doing these micro perimeters and not solely relying on the network to be that security enforcement like we previously did with our with our legacy concepts. Um, and it becomes more of a transport. Now, not to say that I'm not gonna do things, you know, like VLANs and seg my macro segmentation, you know, of the network that I manage and, and rely on, but, you know, the more mobile user, they're, they're now using home networks and things like that, networks that are outside of my control. So what's the visibility? What's the risk tolerances that I have for those types of things? Um, where am I getting my telemetry? Like I said, you know, with the TIC 3.0 uh, flexibilities and some of the technologies we're looking at, I can still get security telemetry from an operational perspective. Um, there is uh, tools that we're looking at to kind of get that more end-to-end -end monitoring to understand, you know, um, if you're at home, Wyatt, and, you know, you're saying, hey, I'm trying to do this VTC, things are going bad, but you're on your home network, you know, I can there's visibility into the ISPs I can have, so I can stitch together that total end to end. So we're looking at those kind of things so we can still support our users um, in a mobile fashion, but we're looking at the network as more of a transport because we're relying on networks more that we don't manage ourselves. Um, but you know what's within my control, like the networks that we do manage, we're gonna still do things there. I'm not, just, I'm not saying that we wouldn't do that. Um, but we look at the network a little differently, and it's not that hard, fast uh, enforcement thing that we looked that we previously um, kind of took it for. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, Jerry, Karen, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to share your insights on the art of defending a dynamic perimeter in today's government. So, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you. I always have a pleasure to talk to you. You can learn more about federal perimeter defense at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Tuesday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.